Well, good afternoon. I uh, drove in from Cleveland, Georgia, uh, just about a half hour, hour ago, and uh, we had a good meeting yesterday. If you want to know where Cleveland, Georgia is, I also wanted to know that about two and a half years ago when they asked me to be their president. I didn't know much about Georgia at the time in terms of North Georgia, right behind the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains as a a college named Truett McConnell College where I have served as well as Dr. Prude is back there and part of this meeting some of our students are back there at uh, Truett McConnell. Uh, when I got on campus I uh, had some fun when I was in Texas I was uh, getting my concealed handgun permit and uh, I hadn't started yet I was one of the last ones to be required to do so and and uh, so I got to Georgia sat down with a police officer and said uh, sir could you help me I'm now in Georgia I'm unfamiliar with all these rules how do I get my concealed and his answer was, uh, boy, we're all in, in Georgia. We all carry guns. Just go get one. <laughs> and so I was introduced to Georgia culture. I was introduced as well through my children. I have three children, uh, all seven and younger, seven, five, and three. And um, when we got there, my wife is from the Czech Republic, for those who may know me. And uh, so we wanted their first language to be Czech. And we were trying to groom them that way and teach them in Czech and then English to be their second language, and now that they're in Georgia, uh, redneck. And uh, they speak it fluently. There are more double negatives coming out of my household right now. Uh, but we love it there. We absolutely love it there with the World Mission Center and our heartbeat uh, for missions and evangelism. And it's a very great privilege to be with each and every one of you today and to see some of you again today. And uh, I want to speak to you. The title of my... Uh, of uh, my discussion is the insider's movement equivalent of limbo, uh, the Campbell method. Let me just begin. At the beginning of the 14th century, the Italian poet Dante penned his divine comedy, a vivid and provocative vision of heaven, hell, and purgatory, narrated by the Roman uh, poet Virgil and later Beatrice, a woman for whom Dante was obsessed his entire life, even though both parties were married to another. In a section, Inferno, Dante imagines the Roman Catholic doctrine of limbo, the state where there is neither suffering nor joy. In limbo, which translates edge or boundary, unbaptized yet virtuous souls. If you haven't read it, these are souls including Moses, Noah, and even Muslims like Saladin, uh, are uh, still awaiting and existing for their exit to, to exit the first ring of hell and to enter the splendors of heaven. Limbo was, in a very real way, the mediation that would draw those most fortunate to enter it, the opportunity to earn a better place. Dante lays bare his heart and hope that those he admired most, Greek poets like Homer, Greek philosophers like Socrates, would be given the privileged chance of entering the promise of paradise. Limbo developed as a tradition in order to remediate the problem of those who were born before Christ's sacrifice or those whose original sin were not removed by infant baptism. It was the bridge between the church and its doctrine and sinners and their fate. So too is the creation of the Camel Method, a missiological model put together by IMB missionary Kevin Greeson that attempts to prove that the Quran declares a biblical Jesus through a closer look of Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verses 42 to 55. The title of the book is actually an acronym. If you're not familiar with what the camel is, it's chosen and angels announced to Mary that he would perform miracles that would lead to eternal life. 
the title that is an acronym it is a methodology that fancies itself as a pre-evangelistic bridge that enables open-minded Muslims. They call them, based on Luke chapter 10, persons of peace, although I would argue that's an eisegetical way to look at that passage. To cross a bridge they would not normally cross due to their fear or disdain for the Scripture. Those who use this method maintain that it is necessary, or at the very least more pragmatic, to use this method since Muslims would not otherwise receive the words of Scripture. Intentionally or unintentionally, the Scripture is declared insufficient in its power to draw men to Christ. And more so, this method also serves as a bridge between the insider's movement, commonly known as C5 or C6, and traditional methodologies now categorized as C1 to C3. When reading the second edition of the Camel Method, Greeson sounds very orthodox on one page and dangerously close to heterodox on another page. His work literally tests limits of denominations such as Southern Baptists, of which I am a part, who openly deny the insider's movement while all the while flirting with a seductive mistress. Examples of Greeson's perilous statement include the following, quote, I agree with what the Quran says about Muhammad, page 144, or it is more important for you to understand that this is not a simple question because the word Muslim has two meanings. On the surface, it simply means one who has submitted to God's will. At the superficial level, no Christian would want to respond with, no, I have not submitted to God's will. Furthermore, example of this embryonic insider's movement can be found through his statements of the end results of his evangelistic efforts. Statements from the Camel Method converts, uh, converts demonstrate an Islamization of Christianity. Here are some of the following examples. They refer to their pastors as imams all throughout. When uh, asked to identify themselves, these, as Greeson calls them, MBBs, reply, I am an Isahi Muslim. Let me say on a side note, by the way, uh, being a former Muslim, I understand why people use MBB. I'm not in favor of using MBB just for myself because I don't want to be identified for who I was. I want to be identified for who I am. Uh, for someone who uh, is saved out of prostitution, they're not an FBB, a fornicating background believer, <laughs> and neither with myself. And so I want to be identified <laughs> with Christ. <laughs> Number three, if I can get you back. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's, that's true. Some more newers. Uh, unlike, here's another quote from uh, Greeson's book. This comes from page 40 and then on 170. Unlike the traditional churches with their long wooden pews, these worshipers sat on the floor and held out the, their open hands in front of them as they prayed, and he would go on to say, continued their ablution rituals. Or, the full truth, catch those words, the full truth of this wonderful gift from Allah is fully revealed in the earlier scriptures, perhaps the most dangerous statement in the book. Incredibly, Mr. Greeson even recognizes that these outcomes were not merely cultural, but Quranic and Islamic. Here's his conclusion from page 34. As we discovered more of how Muslims lived and spread their faith, we knew we would need to learn more about the Quran, which defines so many things in their culture." Unquote. How shocking then that missionaries would not reject a methodology that seems more founded upon the scripture of Islam than the Bible itself. Using Dante's analogy of circles or rings, this boundary, this edge, this paper will deal with simply two decisive issues about the camel method. Number one, 
interpretation of the Quran, and secondly, assumptions that must be made to have usage of this technique. First, hermeneutical gymnastics. The doctrine of revelation is the paramount issue and that which is most troubling about the camel method. Its premise has such a high regard for the Quran, or as it is declared in the book, earlier scriptures. As one prominent missiologist critiqued about the method, this method elevates the Quran to equal or greater importance than God's sufficient and final revelation. Quote from the missiologist, In the contextualization dance sequence between the Quranic truth claims and the Bible, Islam is allowed to begin the process. It then controls the rhythm and pace of thought. A subtle but dialectical truth structure emerges that sets the Quran on equal footing with the Bible, even if it's intended to be temporary. The net effect is a filtering of the Bible through the grid of Quranic truth claims, hence making the context dominant. This often causes syncretistic outcomes that blend biblical truth with cultural error. To take the truth claims of the Bible in Christ, place them into an Islamic theological frame of reference, and utilize Quranic theological syntax to communicate the biblical gospel yields too much. Thus, the book goes on to assert that, quote, walking through these verses of the Quran together, it is easy to show Muslims that Jesus was more, much more than a prophet. Page 42. Greece and states in another section, Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, and verses 42 to 55, attest to divine attributes of Isa that no Muslim can deny. Page 103. Greeson claims that the Quran makes audacious statements uh, of Christ. Here are five of them that we'll talk about in hermeneutics. Number one, Jesus came directly from Allah and that he did not have a father. Page 107. Number two, Jesus, called the Word, is part of Allah Himself, page 131. Three, Jesus is the only prophet who is given power over death, page 108. Number four, Jesus knows the way to heaven, pages 135 and following. And finally, it was Allah's plan to cause Jesus to die, page 138. The problem with this method is not merely in, in whether a Christian is implying the Quran asserts the gospel, which the above concludes. The problem expands because we turn to deceptive exegetical techniques in order to find an interpretation of the Quran that fits the Bible. We need to be clear. We have no more right in abusing and reinterpreting the Quran than someone has to blatantly misinterpret our scriptures in order to prove their presupposition. Mr. Greeson's ignorance of the Quran is no excuse to blatantly misrepresent what the Quran is actually saying. So for the statements above, consider the following. And here's where I'm going to spend a good bit of my time for the next few moments discussing those five statements and what the Quran actually says in that passage. The first statement, if you'll remember, Jesus came directly from Allah and did not have a father. This is a patent misrepresentation of the Quran, chapter 3, especially in verses 45 to 47. Here's what the verse actually does say, not that Jesus came from heaven, but that Allah said be, and it is, which is a full denial of Christ's divinity. It further goes on to, uh, to notice that Greeson even skips over this entire verse, and for obvious reason. And finally, 
of all, of course, the highest sin in Islam is to partner anything or anyone with God. And so Greece's statement would fly in the face of so many other verses that a Muslim has memorized. The Quran attempts to further illustrate Jesus' mere humanity by statement stating in the same chapter, the similitude of Jesus before Allah is that of Adam. And as you know, as you're witnessing to Muslims, if they have any knowledge of Jesus in the Quran, which is mentioned in 93 verses, the comparison is that Jesus is of Adam since Adam did not have a father, neither did Jesus have a father, Adam was not God, and neither Jesus was God. Where do they get that? From the very same verses that Greece attempts to use to prove his deity. Secondly, Jesus called the word as part of Allah himself, found on page 131 of Greece's second edition. Quoting part of Surah Al-Nisa, chapter 4, verse 171, that Jesus is, quote, a spirit proceeding from Allah, unquote, Greeson argues that the divinity of Christ, quote, shines through this verse. However, he does not even quote the entirety of the verse. Here's what it says. In your religion, do not say, or, uh, not say of Allah, but the truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger of Allah, and his word which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers. Say not three, desist. Note the rejection, actually, of polytheism there, but it's supposed to be a rejection of the triunity of our Lord. It will be better for you, for Allah is one God. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above having a son. To him all, all things belong in the heavens and on earth, and enough is Allah as a disposer of affairs. How astounding, then, that the camel would use a verse that explicitly rejects Christ as God and demands Christians desist from believing in the Trinity. It is key to note that this methodology, and this is really a central premise of everything I'm presenting, this methodology will only be useful to Muslims who are ignorant of their own scriptures due to illiteracy or neglect of study. And far be it from Christians to use someone else's ignorance for our advantage. Finally, from that second point he makes, if the spirit breathing into someone is evidence of deity, and as you know, in Islamic theology, the Holy Spirit is mentioning of the angel Gabriel, not of somehow a deified picture, then according to the Quran, Adam's a God, chapter 15 and verse 29, or perhaps Muhammad's a God, chapter 42 and verse 52, where similar statements are found. Let's just hope Muslims don't know that. Third, Jesus is the only prophet who was given power over death, Greason states 108. Once again, the statement based in chapter 3 and verse 49 assumes the ignorance of the listener. Greason once again skips over the meaning of the text. The reason why Isa, the Islamic Jesus, has power over death is, quote, a sign for you, chapter 3, verse 49, that unbelievers may fear Allah and worship Allah as Jesus himself worshiped Allah, chapter 3 and verse 51. Additionally, does not our scriptures illustrate that Elijah has the power over death? Did not the apostles, having been given the authority of Christ, John 14 and John 16, have the power over death? Fourth statement, Jesus knows the way to heaven. This one is sadly simple within the text he's attempting to use. 
The way to heaven is explicitly stipulated to those who, quote, believe and work righteousness, unquote. Chapter 3 and verse 57. Hell is assigned to those who are not Muslims but, quote, reject faith. Chapter 3 and verse 56. Fifth statement he makes. It was Allah's plan to cause Jesus to die. This is one that I've seen pronounced in many settings. It is one that because they find a few who may agree with that statement they place while Islam has a near unanimity that Jesus did not die on the cross. The Quran is absolutely clear on the point from chapter 4 and verse 157 that Jesus did not die on the cross. The verse states, quote, But they killed him not, nor did they crucify him. Only a likeness of that was shown to them, unquote. However, Greeson argues that the passage only denies that Jews did not kill him. His statement's wrong on two levels. First, Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter addresses the Sanhedrin and says, quote, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. It is not to singularly point them out, but they put Christ to death in the same way we put Christ to death. Second, the Quran asserts in the very next verse that, quote, Allah raised Jesus up to himself, not that Jesus died on the cross. In the end, one cannot, quote, discover an amazing truth, as Greece and stipulates, 106, but only a repudiation of the crucial doctrines of Christianity. If Greeson has misinterpreted the Quran, the missionary is back to square one and cannot use such an erroneous technique. Limbo, second circle, dangerous assumptions. Let's get a bit more pragmatic. Imagine walking in, and I've done this, I've actually walked into mosques with those who use the camel method. In one instance when we were doing so, when we were uh, sharing Christ with an imam of a mosque in Thailand, at the end of the conversation, the man using the camel technique, attempting to sympathize with the imam, then said, would you mind if I pray for you? The imam said, okay, although it was begrudgingly so. The camel methodology then was in place as the man holds up his hands as if he were in Islamic prayer and prays that God would bless the truth found in this mosque. And when you find that, you start to have to ask questions that are more pragmatic as well. What about our people, our lay people, the members of our churches, the people we send out? How are they going to use it? Because time and again, I'll hear missionaries say, I only use part of it, but not all of it. You've probably heard that as well. The question is, is that fair? There are many times we have shown up to a camel clinic that the camel's actually not presented from the book or at all, but is something else altogether. That is, the argument that I would use is not that you cannot use the Quran, but you cannot affirm the Quran. That's a far different cry than from the camel. So let's walk through some simple pictures of pragmatism if you use this message. Imagine approaching a Muslim with the camel method and what you must presume upon the encounter. I'll give you five things. First, your presentation of the camel is a method sprung from a Muslim proverb that only a camel knows the hundredth name of Allah. Thus, the presentation itself is based on the theory that the first 99 names of Allah lead to his hundredth name, a definite danger of syncretizing our Lord with Muhammad's imaginary monotheistic invention. That presupposition is fortified when you will open the Quran with a Muslim and speak about the Allah of the Quran as if he was the same as the God of the Bible. Now note what I did not say. This argument does not say whether we can use the word Allah or not, but is a speaking of God's nature, not linguistics. Let's move on. Secondly, 
after you have established rapport with a Muslim and have determined him or her to be open to the discussion, if you'll stop for a second and realize what they try to do is in Luke chapter 10, they try to argue you must only find persons of peace. Now I understand why. As a missionary on the field, you do not want to waste your time on someone who is absolutely obdurate, absolutely stubborn to the gospel. But every time I read the book of Acts, I see the, gospels, the, the apostles doing that. As we don't pick and choose selectively because someone outwardly does not show signs that they're interested, not knowing what's going on inside, we cannot play the Holy Spirit in that regard. But using that rapport, that person's open discussion, you have to believe that Muslims can find salvific hope within the Quran and assume that the Islamic holy book actually teaches the good news of Jesus Christ. You must believe that Muhammad was close to the truth, or even worse, that he received divine revelation about the essential truths of the gospel, and sadly, those truths have been hidden for centuries under the heavy cloak of false teachers of Islam. Third, you have to believe that the terms and doctrines stated in the Quran are synonymous to the terms and doctrines delineated in the Bible. But the terms in the Quran are redefined. For example, although Jesus considered, quote, the word, chapter 3, verse 45, the very same verse defines the term as, quote, nearest to Allah and rejects his deity in favor of a Christ who is a messenger who shall speak to the people, chapter 3, and verse 46. The passage used by the camel also purportedly supports the virgin birth of Christ. Yet a closer look reveals the virgin birth is fully rejected and replaced with a created Jesus who is just another Adam, chapter 3, and verse 59. The Quran will only state that Jesus was strengthened by the Holy Spirit, chapter 2 and verse 87. Recognizing such, those using the camel method must admit they are actually using a passage more in line with Arian heresy than Christological orthodoxy. Fourth, if you presume the passage speaks truth, then the Christian must also agree upon stories found in apocryphal writings. Surah 349 maintains that Jesus made birds out of clay. You know that comes from the infancy gospel of Thomas. If you want to aware, by the way, it's chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Thus, in addition to the Quran having partial revelation, we must now recognize gospels long since rejected by the early church fathers. It is also interesting to note that the same gospel that chronicles Christ's miracles of turning clay into birds also portrays Jesus as a ruthless youngster who called another child, quote, godless, brainless moron, unquote, and then puts a child to death, withering him up like a tree. Finally, and perhaps most disturbingly, you must hope for the pure, unadulterated ignorance of the person to whom you are witnessing. If the person has even a superficial knowledge of his or her Quran, they will know that your exegesis is perverted, and they will prove your ignorance. You must feel comfortable with Christianizing the Quran, skipping verses, putting forth interpretations that has rarely, if ever, been seen in Islamic history. Imagine if the Muslim points out to you that according to chapter 3, Jesus was only close to Allah, created by Allah, and worshipped Allah. Imagine if a Muslim pointed out that Jesus was a Muslim and that the disciples were Muslim, chapter 3 and verse 52. Imagine if the Muslim demonstrated the passage showed a works-based salvation, chapter 3, verse 57, and a God that hates sinners, chapter 3 and verse 57, says, Allah loves not those who do wrong. Just imagine. But it would not be fair simply to pick on a person for his technique 
if we're unwilling to come up with our own. Let me point out what I would do based on Luke chapter 24, verses 24 through 52. During conferences on Islam, which I lead, I'm often asked a simple question, what do you use to share Christ with a Muslim? The question, which is understandable, illustrates three tragic deficiencies among Western Christian culture. First, it grossly assumes that a program is the save-all to evangelism. Second, it argues that a Muslim somehow can only be reached through unique means of sharing the gospel as if we were a different species than the rest of the world. The church where I was saved, where my brother was saved, was the last church you would ever invite me to as a Muslim wanting to hear the gospel. I promise you. It made no logical sense for me to walk into the Stelzer Road Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio. Nothing. It was a Southern Baptist church, and not only denomination, it was Southern. Deep Southern. They were Kentucky folk that went up Ohio, and might as well had a sign on their doors that said, Yankee, keep out. Really did. And God, in his good sense of humor, put three Muslims right inside there. It made no sense. My pastor had two days of Bible education, was an ex-moonshiner who got saved and called to preach. He got married to a Japanese woman who was a former Buddhist who got saved. One of the reasons I believe the Lord sent us there was because of Yuki. Yuki was a prayer warrior. She loved to pray. Sunday nights we'd come around and she'd encircle and she would pray. I had no idea what she was saying. Her thick accent was beyond me. After, oh, heaven, de father, it was anybody's guess what's going on. But her prayers and his bold preaching made that the perfect place. Because ultimately, there is no perfect place. The place where God will send those are the place that preaches the gospel. The rest is merely icing on the cake at best. Well, uh, third, it demonstrates that Western Christians, the vast majority of which are religiously ignorant and biblically illiterate, have a poor understanding of the power and sufficiency of the Word of God. In Southern Baptist life, we fought a battle that many other denominations fought, and thankfully the Lord provided, of inerrancy of Scripture. I believe we are at a point now, we are on a second generation battle. If you ever notice this in church history, whether it is Lutheran or Presbyterian or otherwise, the second generation of any Reformation is on the sufficiency of Scripture. It is far easier to say, I believe the Word, than it is to say, I will practice the word and trust it 100% for my life. Let me go on. Many evangelists and missionaries to Muslims argue that it is nearly impossible to gain a hearing from a Muslim, especially a devout Muslim, unless one has a culturally savvy and innovative technique which finds commonality between two peoples. Proponents point to anecdotal proof, not noting examples which argue against such a superfluous statement. Such a view is insulting to a Muslim's intelligence and worldview. As you know, Islam is a cradle-to-the-grave religion. It encompasses all of life. As such, many Muslims desire to speak of their faith openly, even in the closest of countries. Additionally, they do not mind disagreements, but they despise deception. There is one old uh, verse I, or, uh, tradition I heard from a Muslim uh, who said, there are three ways you can tell a Christian. He lies, he lies, and he lies. And that's where we got to keep away from. My fear, by the way, in all of this is, I know we, we're hoping to remove persecution. But a method like this, that is this deceptive in its exegesis, will actually lead to greater persecution in the long term. Such a view is insulting to the Muslim's intelligence. 
Additionally, they do not mind disagreements. They despise deception. They are aware of the differences between the two faiths, and if confronted forthrightly and compassionately, many times would love to begin a conversation on faith and its consequences. The best technique, therefore, is already in place as seen in Scripture. Randy Newman, in his critically acclaimed book, Questioning and Evangelism, persuasively demonstrates a biblical technique to come through an open and honest conversation of questions and statements as seen in the Old Testament and the life of Christ Himself. This form of confrontational conversation will allow the Christian to hear an open assessment as to the spiritual condition of the person with whom they are sharing. It does not require forced statements or leading statements, but rather will allow a Muslim to speak his mind openly and for the Christian to speak her mind. The Christian witness, which should assume that the Muslim is a traditional inherent until otherwise noted, can begin recognizing the barriers to faith in Christ. He'll have ample opportunity to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit through his written word to share passages that will speak to the Muslim by asking these questions. And as seen in Luke 24, 27, the Christian must recognize that the sufficiency of Scripture is articulated through the Savior who, quote, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Unquote. If you'll remember, the passage is fairly simple. You've probably read it more than a dozen times. Where the two are on the road to Emmaus, and they're debating what happened after the resurrection. All of the historical evidence is in place, yet they're still bantering about. What was it that convinced them of the resurrection of Christ but Jesus sitting down and beginning at Moses. Let's move on. The Word of God, which convinced the disciples 2,000 years ago, remains as powerful today and will clearly point to the risen Lord who saves. When the disciples heard Christ's message, they were empowered and proclaimed, The Lord is risen indeed, Luke 24, 34. The disciples knew that a suffering Savior called them to suffer, to die daily, was an appeal to their evangelism as well. When speaking with those who wish to share Christ with Muslims, we too must remember that we are not called to be a 21st century church. We are called to be a 1st century church in the 21st century world. We must stand with the persecuted church, not behind it. We must adore hardships along with those who suffer due to denouncing Islam and standing for Christ. A unified message will only come through a unified stand. Finally, evangelism does not end at the point of conversion. The Great Commission commands us to baptize and teach. Any technique which diminishes the importance of following all of the Great Commission must be obfuscated for one that clearly delineates a biblical view of discipleship. The Muslim, like anyone else who comes to Christ, must take a public stand for his or her faith and be immediately connected to a local body of baptized believers who can disciple him in the faith. He must realize that he's a part of a holy nation, 1 Peter 1.9, and he can walk worthy of the call in which he's called, Ephesians 4.1. He is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and we must help him remove the theological baggage which has ensnared him for so many years. Anyone in here who comes out of any other faith beyond growing up under the admonition of the Lord recognizes how difficult it is to remove theological baggage. You de facto will come in like I came in, picturing God as merely judgmental, conditionally loving, and that's it. 
And I did not understand until I came across the path of Romans 5, 8 that God compels His love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't understand 1 John 4, 10 that this is love, not that we loved Him first, but that He loved us and gave Himself to be a propitiation for our sins. Methods like this allow them to carry their baggage. Uh, I'm free. And I don't want to keep my baggage. And I don't want anybody else to keep their baggage. And to be honest with you, that baggage is not merely Islamic. It can be cultural in America as well, can it? There are a lot of churches carrying a lot of baggage because we refuse to disciple them properly. Now, I got to take care of my grandmother the last four years of her life. One of the great things that my brother and I did together. We had a blast. She actually was saved when she was 92 years old. Uh, Two reasons, really. The church in which my brother and I were serving at Wood Baptist loved her to Christ. And secondly, we had a nurse who would take care of Grandma when I was in seminary. I was in seminary during those days. And the nurse was an African-American woman who was a pastor's wife. I mean, she just evangelized and evangelized and evangelized. She took care of Grandma, I mean, like a true servant. I came home from uh, class one day, and Ernestine had given Grandma a haircut. More more was in cornrows. <laughs> and I'm not talking thin. I'm talking the Snoop Doggy Dog cornrows. My mind still carrying some of my own cultural baggage. Ernestine looks at me and says, what do you think? And I just blurted out, could you make her white again? <laughs> Any problem with it beyond the fact that she, with a cool haircut, got far more dates at 92 than I did at 22 back then. No, we all carry small baggage, large baggage, baggage in between. And God help us to allow people to carry their baggage into heaven. And uh, the glorification then would have to remove it. The heavy baggage of ritualism, as seen through such practices as Islamic prayers, is replaced with a relationship with Christ that has no such requirements. He is free, and his freedom is a godly witness to others still in bondage. In the end, any true evangelism will be accomplished through the demonstration of transformed lives, not privatized faith. 